ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for, uh, for coming along um, this evening. Uh, I'm informed that the queues at uh, Cromwell Green are uh, incredibly long, and it's taking a very long time for anybody to get through security and into the building tonight, so we're going to crack on because I know that some of our guests have got to be away sharpish, and uh, people can just drift in and drift out if they so choose uh, over the next hour or so. I'm delighted to be here this evening to host what is uh, an incredibly important discussion about an incredibly important part of the world at an incredibly important time. And we have with us to discuss the UK and the Gulf security priorities for 2020, um, three very, very uh, interesting and uh, you know, speakers who are very much schooled and learned in the discussion that we're going and the, the issues that we're going to be talking about tonight. I'll start on my right. Uh, Ellie. Uh, Ellie is a Senior Policy Fellow and Deputy Head of the Middle East and North Africa Programme at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, to my left, uh, General Sir Simon Mill um, has a distinguished 40-year career, I know he's known to some people in the room already in the British Army, during which he served in Germany, Northern Ireland, the Balkans, the Middle East and Central Asia, and he has also held several high-level appointments in the policy world of the Ministry of Defence. And to my far right, uh, a gentleman who needs no introduction to this building, uh, Sir Michael Fallon, former Member of Parliament from, for Sevenoaks and Darlington, and from 2014 to 17 was the Secretary of State for Defence and a member of the National Security Council. So uh, on that, I'm going to hand over to General Sir Simon to uh, start us off this evening. Great, thank well, you. Thank you very much, Andrew. Really, really nice to be back in the House of Commons. I notice it's already been packed up to move somewhere. It's yet to be decided, I suppose. Um, I think today, uh, it's a very important uh, time to be discussing the Gulf. Uh, we're headed towards the SDSR. Um, I hope that the context is going to be heavily set by the Prime Minister's enthusiasm both for the Brexit process and for the reality that we need to get out and about in a part of the world. And um, it's very easy, I think, when people talk about the Middle East to slightly horrifically begin, continue to define it by problems in Iraq and problems in Syria and uh, the horrors on the borders with the Kurds and uh, riots in Lebanon and riots in and population growth in Egypt, etc. Um, but the Middle East is extremely diverse, and for those of you who know the Gulf, uh, and those of you who have been there recently, uh, you'll know that the, the Gulf represents an extraordinary, hardly an oasis, given that it's in the middle of a, the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean, uh, of, of, of stability in many ways, and huge opportunity, and huge change uh, is, is taking place there. Uh, and uh, the Gulf has been remarkable in terms of... Uh, taking the wealth it inherited, inherited through oil and gas in the ground, uh, and through, I think, extraordinary stewardship, given the, uh, the journey they went on from very, very conservative, patriarchal, old-fashioned states with very little other than, honestly, herding, pearl fishing, a bit of piracy in the 19th century. Uh, the stewardship of the great city-states of, uh, of the Gulf, I, I think, are quite extraordinary. Tribute to the way they have managed that that wealth, and again, those of you who know uh, the Gulf know that they are very conscious of the requirement for diversification, for building human capital, uh, for uh, imagining a, a world without oil as such. Uh, although it is worth remembering that there is no scenario whatsoever that rules oil and fossil fuels out of the energy equation of the world 2040, 2050. So at the moment, although 80% of the oil turns east, as it comes out of the Straits of Hormuz going to China, uh, even though the Americans <coughs> are independent of uh, energy, etc., somebody needs those supplies. 
and somebody needs a stable foundation from which to get those supplies at a reasonable rate. And the Gulf states have survived the Iran-Iraq war, they've survived the Gulf War, they've survived AQ, they've survived 9-11, they've survived the botched occupation invasion of Iraq, uh, they've survived uh, the Arab Spring, uh, I could say survive, a sad, sad uh, ending to the great hopes that perhaps we had. And yes, they've got money, yes, that money buys them time. Uh, they have far more legitimacy than many critics of the Gulf states give them uh, because there's a certain uh, aversion to royalty. Uh, they have a larger degree of homogeneity than perhaps the, uh, the republics uh, certainly have. Uh, yes, there is a Sunni, Sunni Shia split. Um, they have a huge amount, demonstrate a huge amount of flexibility. Some of the leadership, I think, is absolutely outstanding. There is a lot of participatory politics, and there's an alignment to the mainstream of the cultural thing. And they have had good friends. The UK very firmly among them. Uh, I was in Saudi Arabia uh, last week, uh, and again, for those of you who have an image of Saudi Arabia or know it well and have gone back, you'll know how dramatically it's changing. It sounds like obvious stuff to us that people should mix in restaurants and women should drive cars. But again, I don't need to tell you when you watch us in Saudi Arabia, this is, this is seriously, seriously challenging stuff. The reality is that 50% of Saudi Arabians are under the age of 20. 50% of Saudi Arabia was not alive at the time of 9-11. It defined my life, it defined most of us of a certain age. That means 25% of Saudi Arabian people are women under 20. That genie is out of the bottle. You can put it back, and people like the Iranian Ayatollahs will try to, and Nations of Hezbollah, but that is going to be very, very difficult to do so. I was in Qatar, uh, the joint UK uh, Qatar Typhoon Squadron has just completed its conversion course. Uh, I was in Bahrain visiting the new naval base the other day, the new Mail Square, he said with some pride, has just been opened, uh, which is a mark of our commitment back then. And I'm going to Oman next week, where a bunch of us who served the Sultan of Oman in the 1980s uh, are going back on a trip down memory lane. So these links between Britain and, and the Gulf are, are, are really strong. Uh, we have a new UK government. We are going to be out of Europe. People call it a crisis, but as we know, a crisis in Chinese biogram is both danger and opportunity. To my mind, this is all about opportunity. And we have an SDSR that absolutely needs to grasp uh, the fact that our security and defence depend on our prosperity. We only pay for the armed forces we have with a healthy economy without diverting my way. So where is, where is growth, where is money, where is prosperity? It still remains in the Gulf that continues to look for stability. Uh, and we need to recalibrate that relationship. It has been very on-off, really, since we chose to withdraw from the Gulf in 1971. And it's always been important to us. Uh, the, Indian, uh, the East India Company uh, had to protect its routes both around the Cape uh, and up from Bombay to Basra, across to Aleppo and into the, into the, uh, into, uh, the Mediterranean. Uh, and we, 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 the British, uh, were seen off other imperial predators. We were certainly seen off the Iranians, the Persians, and, and Gulf pirates. And we have policed the Gulf, and we did police the Gulf, really, from the early 19th century. And the great truce that we all talk about sometimes, the, the trucial states, etc., were about the Gulf states, or the Gulf tribes at that stage, asking the British to police a truce between themselves. And lo and behold, after all that, and the loyalty we were, we were shown, or the the affection we were shown even up to the Second World War, where Bahrain, as I keep reminding people, with no army, declared for, on behalf of the British and gave a cheque to the British agent there for £30,000. 
to go towards uh, 10 Spitfire fighters and were bombed for their trouble by the Italians. Um, and amazingly, as the King of Bahrain said to me, uh, you protected us for nearly 150 years when we had absolutely nothing. And then in 1968, just as we were discovered oil and we were on our way to huge wealth, the largest transfer of wealth in history, you buggered off. And he's right. And the most, one of the most disastrous foreign policy decisions we ever made, to my mind, was the 68 decision to withdraw from Eastern Suez. Uh, and by the time Ted Heath got in in 70, it was actually getting a bit too late uh, for, to, to go back. Although we did stay in Oman to fight the war there against the, uh, in, in the Dofar. Um, and so um, our track record there is, is, is good, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's patchy. We thought we would go back into the Gulf in 1991. Everybody expected Margaret Thatcher would have recommitted to a British presence in the Gulf, a permanent British presence. And sadly, at that stage, she had been defenestrated by her own party. Uh, and in 1995, the American came in with the Fifth Fleet. Uh, I remember in 2001, again, we tried to pull out of a big exercise we were going to do with the Omanis. Uh, and lo and behold, we, a number of us went round, rallied round, said, no, 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 you can't do this. Oman's been one of our greatest uh, supporters in the Gulf. We went back on exercise. Uh, and while we were deploying onto that exercise, 9-11 happened. And lo and behold, thank God it did, because what would, what would we have done if we had deserted the Sultan who had been so generous and, uh, and loyal to us over so many years? Cameron, when he came in in 2010, started a thing called the Gulf Initiative. We then set up a post called Defence Senior Advisor Middle East. Uh, it's great to see John Lorimer here, who's now my successor, and successor, successor. And for anybody in Parliament here, please do not let that role uh, wither on the vine. There's always a temptation to to cherry pick. Uh, and I remember saying we must have a Gulf strategy. We still don't really have a Gulf strategy. We must commit properly. Uh, and we said, when are we not going to be involved in the Gulf? We have 200,000 expatriates uh, spread across the Gulf, 80,000 in, in, in the Emirates alone. And we need to reverse the Eastern Suez decision. And I said to Philip Hammond, I remember saying, we have not had a policy for the Gulf, we the British, since the policy was to get out of the Gulf. And Philip Hammond said to me, yes, I hear you, Simon, but we have, in fact, been in the Gulf for the intervening 40 years. I said, no, we haven't, with respect, Secretary of State. We've been there one year 40 times. And for people with the longevity of the Gulf, Gulf monarchies and the Gulf families, that looks inconsistent. And it looks ludicrous, given the, the scale of our investment out there, the, the interest we have, defence, security, prosperity. Um, and I wrote that we looked mean-spirited, petty, tight-fisted, and ungracious. And in Arab culture, none of those are particularly attractive qualities. Um, after the setbacks in Iraq and Afghanistan, we did go back to establish the first permanent military British base east of Suez in Bahrain, uh, which is where, as I say, the great male square is. Um, and that, even that, even that paid for uh, the generosity of the Bahrainis, uh, was rejected or pushed back from the Foreign Office, from the uh, Ministry of Defence, the Royal Navy. And luckily, I said, you build it, we will come, we will shame them. And now we talk quite legitimately and policy terms of the UK's back east of Suez. Uh, and so, since the election, everywhere I go in the Middle East, the great criers, we're hoping we've got our old Britain back. The Britain that didn't hide behind the skirts of the European Union to say it's all a bit difficult, this, that, the other. We have government direction that we're going for global Britain. We need to get all elements of the United Kingdom behind that. We've got to get over an institutional aversion. 
a consent and evade to uh, a thing. We've got to get on message. Uh, I would say the Gulf security remains as vital as it always has. Energy security, see, I've mentioned the scenarios on energy supplies, uh, and uh, the China continues to make, uh, make inroads there, and the US is retrenching. It is the only stable area of the Middle East to an extent. Uh, nothing is better if we encourage instability in the Gulf. There is nothing better. We haven't learned from our experiences in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, etc., uh, that we think uh, there's some liberal Democrat party waiting to come out of the pigeonholes to take over from the House of Saud or the other monarchies. Let us be absolutely clear how legitimate these people feel with the people they have. And so we need a range of requirements, economic, uh, education, health, and defence and security. There's a raft of areas where these societies are feeling very beleaguered and looking, frankly, to their first natural port of call remains the United Kingdom. Uh, and to my mind, in helping our own prosperity agenda, we should be helping feed the security and defence agenda of uh, our long-standing friends. So I'm hoping to goodness under the S SDSR that we have a clear-sighted assessment of UK's national interest, uh, not some of the dreadful posturing and patronising approaches of the last years. Uh, and the British, uh, the United Kingdom commits uh, very firmly uh, to uh, building on the huge amount of well of affection uh, and self-interest we have across the Gulf states. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you very much. That. So Simon, that was absolutely fascinating. And we'll come to questions slightly later on uh, in proceedings. But now I'd like to uh, ask uh, Ellie Garin-Meyer to say a few words from, from your perspective. Thank you very much. Um, thank you all for joining us this evening and thank you to CMIC for hosting us. Um, I wanted to actually, I think Sir Simon set out um, the backdrop uh, very well. I'm going to take a more expansive view of the Gulf region um, to include both Iran and Iraq as well in terms of where I think the priorities um, for the UK should be focused on coming year. Just to give you a little bit of background, um, I've, I've been working with the European Council on Foreign Relations for almost seven years, um, primarily focused on relations with Iran, um, but of course that takes us everywhere from the US to Iraq um, uh, to the GCC states. Um, I've been traveling extensively um, to Iraq, I just returned over the weekend from the UAE and Amman, uh, where we're really considering pathways for regional de-escalation at a very tense time. So I'm afraid what I'm about to say is slightly more gloomy um, and, um, and has a lot of flashpoints ahead for where UK priorities should be. I just caveat most of what I'm saying with a, um, I think, understanding that the bandwidth um, in the UK will be um, impacted, I think, both by the transatlantic relations and how they influence um, ties uh, to the Gulf region, but also relations with Europe, um, which we've seen um, remain united, at least till now, on issues like the nuclear deal with Iran, but those things may get um, pushed in different directions the closer we get to the end of this year. Um, and so I think looking ahead, the UK really has to look at what its core priorities are in terms of its key interests and also where it can have most influence because there are a number of conflicts um, in the region at the moment that impact directly or indirectly the UK, but there is only so much um, that can be had in terms of influence and impact. Um, so I'll limit my points to three main areas where I think there should be strategic priority. Um, first, um, Iraq. Um, 
The first heading there, I would say the UK really needs to look at its involvement in the counter-ISIS coalition going forward. This is an area of priority for both the US, the UK, and European allies, uh, particularly as um, the, the, the relationship with Baghdad becomes more and more um, strained um, given recent events. And so how that... Uh, how the UK operates with its troops on the ground as part of the coalition or not, I think will be important, particularly um, in terms of ensuring the stability of Iraq, preventing a, a wave of counterinsurgency, which many experts are predicting in the coming years ahead, and also securing, frankly, UK's um, assets on the ground, whether that's military or, or economic. Um, another area I think where there should be a real focus for the UK on Iraq is ring fencing. Iraq from the growing US-Iran tensions uh, that we've seen really play out most visibly in Iraq. It's very clear that none of the factions, none of the relevant factions in Iraq are interested in being caught in the mix of this escalation. And I think, frankly, most um, of the political uh, centers of power in Iraq are looking for partners, including the UK and other European governments, to help ring fence against, um, against Iraq being caught in the middle. And one area where I think the UK can have concrete impact is its um, using its relations with the United States, particularly in Congress, the US Treasury and the US administration, to prevent an extension of the maximum pressure campaign against Iran uh, from rippling into Iraq, um, particularly when it comes to economic pressure, uh, potential sanctions that may impact Iraq's energy sector, and access to revenues. And the second area which um, kind of pairs with the, with the Iraq question is really preventing military escalation in the Gulf region. And here the center focal point is, is the knock-on impact of the U.S.-Iran um, uh, tensions that have been growing. And we've seen that playing out, I think, at a peak in terms of military escalations in January um, with the killing of um, Qasem Soleimani and Iran's response of attacking basis um, hosting the U.S. inside Iraq. And I think that has really shown um, that there can be real inadvertent consequences, despite the fact that both sides clearly want to avoid a direct military conflict. Sometimes events pull them in, in a direction that perhaps neither Washington or Tehran wants. And clearly there is a lot of uh, room in the region for black swan events um, that none of us can predict in this room, um, including, for example, um, the tragic shooting down of the Ukraine airliner um, by, by Iran in, in the aftermath of the, of the tensions with the US. And so what the UK, I think, can do on, on this front um, is twofold mainly. I think that particularly the, the, the UK Prime Minister has a distinctive role in terms of relations with both Washington, uh, President Trump directly, but also interestingly Iran. Uh, I mean, I don't think Prime Minister Johnson has a soured relationship uh, with Tehran. And I think here he can actually play a useful role in pushing both sides towards a political track. We've seen uh, the French President Emmanuel Macron try and push for this. I do think we're at a point where perhaps uh, the baton may be passed from the French side to the UK side, uh, particularly, for example, in places like the G7 summit coming up in the summer, uh, where the UK Prime Minister now, with a much more strong domestic uh, positioning, can, can have a more extended um, role on foreign policy issues, including the US and Iran. 
A second area here, uh, which I think will be a key issue for the UK going forward, is its role as a stakeholder to the nuclear deal. Um, so far, we've seen the UK uh, remain in a unified uh, position with other countries in, in, in Europe, France and Germany. Um, and I do think it will be very important for the UK to maintain that role um, if it is to have any influence to try and prevent um, further expansion of Iran's nuclear program uh, by maintaining this channel of dialogue with Iran for a process of negotiation, which is, I think, what is happening right now uh, between the Europeans and, and Iran. A third area where I think we should flag on the priorities, um, and it's, it, it mirrors with the point that Sir Simon made, is working with um, traditional partners in the Gulf. Um, as I mentioned, I've just been to Amman and UAE, and I feel a huge opening at the moment um, for allies in Europe, including the United Kingdom, I should say particularly the United Kingdom, to have a, a more expanded engagement when it comes to this issue of regional de-escalation, but also in terms of economic cooperation uh, to stabilize um, the countries in the region. Um, here I would say Oman is, is um, coming out of a transition phase. It's clear to me that the economic issues of priority and they see the UK as one of the biggest economic partners for that. Um, and one of the things that came out from my trip is if we want countries like Oman to continue playing the role of facilitating regional dialogue between the GCC and Iran, they need to have a strong, stable economy to do that. And countries like the UK can play, play a role in, in bolstering that position. Also, the United Arab Emirates, I think, is now in a very interesting um, position when it comes to calibrating what the US maximum pressure campaign means for regional players, including the UAE. Um, we've seen, I think, one of the main costs um, from the US-Iran tensions being borne out by regional players like Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And I sense a opening from the UAE in particular to pursue off-ramps, um, political off-ramps. And they see European countries like the UK, but others as well, including France, as being able to facilitate um, that regional de-escalation process. So I'll leave it at that and look forward to the exchange ahead. Thank you very much, Ellie. Quite a lot to get our teeth into there as well. And uh, last but certainly not least, uh, Sir Michael. Well, Andrew, thank you very much and good evening. And thank you for inviting me back. I thought I'd got away from this. <laughs> I'm not sure that I still have to declare an interest, but uh, I am uh, Deputy Chairman of Ganel Energy, which has oil and gas interests in the Kurdistan region of Iraq, and I'm an advisor to Investcorp, which was originally um, Bahraini-based. Uh, I agree with both the, the two panellists. I mean, this is a very good time to be uh, re-examining our relationship with the Gulf. We have this uh, promised comprehensive security defence review underway now. Um, we have the opportunity after Brexit of a new trade deal with the GCC as a whole, which I think has been uh, neglected as a, as, as, a, as a topic. And of course, we now have the Foreign Secretary back in the Gulf. So it is a good time to look and see whether we should recalibrate and how we should uh, recalibrate. And obviously that includes, as my fellow panelists have said, the right response to continuing Iranian aggression the continuing threat of Islamist fundamentalism, and how we protect our remain, uh, surviving UK interests in the region. It's worth reminding ourselves what we committed to in the last Defence and Security Review, 
in 2015 that uh, Simon and I and General John and others worked on. We committed first to a permanent and more substantial military presence, building on but not confined to HMS uh, Jaffair in, in Bahrain. We committed to developing those historic relationships across the Gulf, reflecting both the long-term nature of those uh, uh, relationships, the challenges and the opportunities, and thirdly, we committed to continuing to offer reassurance to our friends in the Gulf. Now, I think we've fulfilled that over the last uh, four or five years. We saw extensive cooperation between the UK and the Gulf countries in the coalition to deal militarily with uh, Daesh, um, allowing us to use the, the bases there, uh, helping with other logistics, and we've seen also significant resources contributed by this country to uh, Safe Syria 3, a major exercise. We've seen uh, strengthening of the bilateral relationships that we have through the work of General Simon and General John with the individual countries in the Gulf. But looking ahead, it still seems to me that the strategic imperative that General Simon outlined uh, remains. The security of the Gulf is in the end the security of this country. There is no getting away from that. And that is, first of all, the security of our trade and energy supply routes, protecting transit through the Strait of Hormuz from the Gulf, through the Bab el-Mendeb from the Red Sea, is just as important for this country as um, the international waterways elsewhere, Malacca, the waterway into the Pacific. Second, our homeland security depends on us dealing with the threat of terrorism. Many of the attacks we've seen in recent years have been inspired, orchestrated, or directed from outside this country. I know some have been homegrown, but others have been directed from outside. And we cannot afford, as a country, to see the, the embers of Daesh fanned again, either in Iraq, or to see further affiliates of AQ start out of the chaos of some of the uh, other conflicts that we've seen. And finally, as Simon, I think, has brought out, our political and commercial interests as a country uh, are interlocked. They do depend on the stability of the region, and they certainly stand to be affected by any destabilization, whether it's conducted by Iran or anybody else. Now, what should we be looking to do about all that in the next defense review? In my, uh, in my judgment, and uh, I want to try, Andrew, just to shatter some of the consensus around here, um, because otherwise you'll just have three people agreeing with each other. I think we need to do three things, and I don't agree, I'm afraid, with my colleague here. I think first, we need to be much more clear-sighted and hard-headed about Iranian aggression. Um, the uh, JCPOA was not a comprehensive agreement, and clearly, it is not a successful agreement. It is disintegrated. And, um, of course, we can play a moderating role, perhaps, between Europe and the United States. But equally, we do need a wider and better agreement that properly constrains the ability of Iran to interfere in other countries and to use its access that it's enabled to have to the international financial system to, uh, to uh, promote uh, instability elsewhere. Secondly, I think we need to regularize protection of these international waterways. The tankers were first attacked last May. The European force is not arriving in the Gulf, as I understand it, until 
next week or the week after, some 10 months later. Uh, you do, I'm not sure what the French for brain dead is, but you do have to wonder uh, just why it has taken Europe so long. The Australians committed immediately to that international force, and we have to be there. And of course, it has to involve the United States. And I think we need to look to see how these, water, these international waterways can be more permanently and better protected without us always looking our, over our shoulders saying, will it upset somebody uh, on one side of the Gulf or the other? And third, I think, and this perhaps is controversial, uh, or more controversial, I think we ought to use the opportunity of the review to rethink the credibility of our military posture. And I say that in no disrespect to the arrangements that we had and the support we had in the Gulf for the coalition against the Daesh. Um, but, and, and the posture we have there, the mine hunters are useful. Uh, I think the typhoons there, the joint force helps, of course. Having the training and the exchanges and the exercises, all of that helps. But when it came to the crunch as Secretary of State, when I was faced with the uh, need to deal with a very direct terrorist threat, or the need to plan the potential rescue of a British hostage, then, of course, our posture did not suffice. Of course, we would, in that kind of planning, we had to rely on uh, other people, notably the Americans, for the surveillance, uh, the helicopters, the, the medivac, and the other support that these kind of operations need. So I think perhaps we ought to use this opportunity to be a bit more serious about what we mean by permanent presence in the Gulf. I'd like to see those aircraft carriers calling in, um, not just to Dukham, but also in Bahrain as well. I'd like to see a frigate or a destroyer based more permanently in the Gulf, not just the mine hunters. I'd like to see a helicopter force uh, available at all times in the Gulf, rather than sometimes having to be <coughs> flown out um, with the delays involved. And I'd like to see more of our rapid reaction forces, uh, an element of those rapid reaction forces available in the Middle East for when trouble breaks out. We've got an expanding defense budget now. It's been growing steadily over the last few years. I'm hoping it's going to grow again. And I think there's a real opportunity, not just to say we should be back east of Suez, we should be in Indo-Pacific, um, but saying how, and actually starting to commit it, uh, real forces that can help us in times of trouble. Thank you. Well, thank you uh, all three for three very fascinating insights into um, the UK's position in the Gulf and the wider region and the situation uh, in the Gulf region just now. I'm going to abuse my position as chair uh, to ask uh, uh, the first question, I'll be, uh, I will ask quick questions and I would, I would um, very much uh, welcome quick answers because we only have uh, 18 or so minutes before votes in the House of Commons. Um, and so Simon, you spoke, uh, you briefly sort of skimmed over American uh, energy independence. And all three speakers this evening have spoken about the need for America to be involved in whatever uh, posture that we take or whatever coalition we form in the region. Is there a a fear from somebody like yourself, who from a military perspective has been involved in the Gulf for quite a long time, that America will lose interest in the Gulf region 
that um, the, their knee-jerk foreign policy uh, right now is being driven by a White House uh, who's uh, very unpredictable. Um, do you worry that the Americans don't have a long-term interest in the Gulf? And do you think that will affect our position out there as well? Well, I think it will. Um, but funnily enough, I think there's an opportunity in here, and Ellie's referred to it, and it's great to hear Sir Michael again talk about you know, how, how do we leverage off this for wider British national interest. And in many ways, it feeds into Trump saying, well, our allies aren't doing enough. To an extent, we can do a bit more heavy lifting in the Gulf, to my mind. I do think a permanent frigate out there, I do think a bit more forward positioning allows the Americans to actually go where they are inclined to focus a bit more, which is the Indo-Pacific area and, and the sort of China, if you look at the threat or a challenge, certainly. Uh, and so we would then be able to, my mind, politically leverage off that, or Boris Johnson or Dominic Raab, to say, look, you know, I know you keep talking about NATO, but we'll try and do NATO, but we'll actually do some bilateral stuff in an area where we sense you are doing a bit of retrenchment because actually the energy equation allows you to or, or provokes you to do it. It doesn't allow us quite the same, so let, let us lean into here, oh, America, and let us also then leverage off that for political and diplomatic advantage. So I think we should be going there, and I think we should also be imagining about what we can achieve from there on the prosperity side and what we can achieve from it diplomatically with our, with our allies. Thank you very much, Ellie. Well, look, from my discussions with regional players, what we've seen happen under the Trump administration vis-a-vis -vis the region is really an extension of what had been seen under the Obama administration in terms of this retrenchment. Mm -hmm. I think the way that um, the Trump administration is doing it is far more unpredictable, perhaps in some ways undiplomatic, uh, in, in the view of some in the region. Um, and so there is this, um, there is this sense that um, that trust in the alliance was damaged under the Obama administration, according to some uh, folks in the GCC, uh, but it's not really back to normal now either. And there is a sense that everybody's hedging their bets mm. against what will happen in November in the US elections, and, and they're trying to diversify their partners. Now, part of that diversification <coughs> is including China and Russia, frankly, and part of it will include, I think, European interlocutors. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, I um, agree with all of that. I think it's always a mistake to draw these rigid lines between the Obama administration was that way and, you know, the um, Trump administration's going that way or there's a division, you know, real distinction between what Boris Johnson is doing and what Theresa May and David Cameron were trying to do. Usually these changes take place in the middle of administrations, actually, rather than at the very, uh, the very beginning. I mean, there's always been this pull to the Pacific for America. It's, it's last... Well, those two big wars were in the Pacific, not 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 in, not in the Gulf or, or over here. So you know that that's been going on anyway. And if you look at the evidence, the carrier, you know, the American carrier is still there. Uh, American troops are there. The base is there. Bases are there. America has not withdrawn. And if you look at some of the, uh, you know, if, if you look at what actually happens after Trump makes his announcements and go back a month or two afterwards, um, the troops haven't actually gone from either Afghanistan or even some of them from northern Syria. You know, it's not quite as stark as that. But there is an opportunity. And uh, you know, clearly, we are as dependent, particularly on the, uh, uh, on the international waterways, as anybody else. We have the Navy. European countries have the ability to step up to this. And really, it is time they did so. OK, thank you. And on that note, I think I'll open to the floor for questions. Anybody? Anybody <coughs> first? Nobody asks, I'll ask another one. Yes? Well, it's sort of more, more statement that's going to evolve into a question. I mean, I think we have, I mean, I'm worried, and 
I, I don't disagree with Simon or anything he's actually said. I just worry that we're not being realistic. Because you know, I was ambassador in Iraq, uh, we had 10,000 troops there, and we had troops in Afghanistan. Then I moved to Afghanistan, and we had 10,000 troops in Afghanistan, and we still had troops in Iraq. Every, uh, every session I go to now, and I was you know, with uh, Carlton Smith, uh, suggested to me 85,000 troops. Is, we, never, we, we couldn't do that now. We could not have a presence in, uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, in, we, could, we couldn't do a deliberate division to uh, Iraq as part of an American invasion. So we have very limited capability. And I wonder if even in an expanding budget that's going to change much. Uh, so we're probably, and, and what we're trying to do is more with less. I don't disagree, we, should, we need to commit to the, to the Gulf. But in an area where the US is both hesitant and inconsistent, and I agree with you and Michael, it started under Obama a little bit under, but you know, the, the attack on Arctic by the Iranians, the Americans basically told, told the Saudis, you're on your own if you, if you want to take this further. So uh, it will be building up a serious relationship with the UAE and Saudi Arabia at a time when that is politically becoming much more difficult. Uh, you know, I, I was passed in Saudi Arabia and I never envisaged we'd be in a position where we couldn't sell arms to Saudi Arabia, which is where we are at the moment. We're in a position where we can't sell arms to Saudi Arabia because of Yemen. So the environment is much more complex, much more difficult. Our capacity is less. Um, I'm not saying that's not should we should try the things that you know you're, you're talking about, but we have to be realistic in, in, in how much we can achieve. Yeah. Can I make two very quick points? One, rather, rather trite expression, but at the Myanmar dialogue, when I heard the Americans, you know, two people up there. All, and I take, I take Michael's point entirely, you know, what, what the Americans say, what they do. But the rhetoric and the actions break trust. And my slightly cliche was the one thing you can't surge in the region is trust. You can surge troops in, you can surge aircraft, you can surge. You can't surge trust. When people begin to get nervous, and particularly when power is very personal and it's family, I'm worried actually about my grandson being well, I think that's, that, that is what has been really damaging about America. The other one I would say is we're not trying to put 10,000 troops in. I think I'd rather have a bigger army, because I think if you use it imaginatively, you can cover an awful lot of bases. But I wish to goodness we'd put a, a battalion on a rotational basis into UAE when we thought about it. The French have gone in, they put a, they, ahead of us, they put a, 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 a naval base in there, they put a French Foreign Legion battalion in there. They put a squadron of Rafale because the Middle East counts them, and then they turn to the likes of Mohammed bin Zayed and say, oh, that big metro deal over there, what about these nuclear reactors? And we have, a, we have this a mindset in the in United Kingdom that military presence means defense sales. Military presence means we feed your sense of insecurity and we'd like you to feed our sense of economic insecurity. And the French are much better at making that connection. You're right, we couldn't do the big heavy lifting, but to my mind, leaning in with some troops on the ground in a, whether Oman or UAE, I think, to my mind, it's a good use of the sunk costs of our military. A frigate, a squadron of aircraft somewhere in the Gulf, constantly seen, used by ambassadors like yourself or ministers like Michael going out there as it was, to demonstrate we're serious, we're not going to disappear around the horizon again. That's the sort of mood music I would, I would, I would be arguing strongly for. Michael, to my, to my mind, this is exactly what Global Britain should yep. mean. Now, Global Britain has been a phrase that's been on the go since, well, before I got elected in 2017, but nobody's been ever, ever able to explain to, well, <laughs> MPs, let alone the wider public or the wider world, what it actually means. So, as a former Secretary of State of Defence, might you sort of give your... Well, I think, you know, there is no hiding place now. We've got to work out what it means.
things. Yeah. You know, given we've now legally left uh, Europe and we're completing, we have the trade uh, agreement with Europe this year, we've now got to get on um, with the trade agreements elsewhere and actually decide how global we're going to be and what commitments that is going to involve. And that isn't just talking, you know, about, uh, you know, using these words like posture and, you know, and a more occasional presence and sending an aircraft carrier through the South China Sea. We've got to think out exactly where we need to be on a permanent basis. Uh, and I'm sure you would accept so. We're not, I don't think putting a division, you know, is, 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 feasible, is, feasible, is feasible anymore. But I'm absolutely with Simon, you know, to have some elements of a, a, a rapid reaction force, to have more enablers there, and to have more bigger ships, you know, uh, coming through and, and basing themselves there, I think would go a long way. Can I just, yeah. just add to that, you know, from my recent discussions with um, regional players, I wouldn't say everybody is in agreement about whether the solution to the region's instability is going to come from the military side. Mm -hmm. And so actually, I do think a, a stepped up political engagement right now is where the value can be added much more extensively. Um, yes, I see. Yourself and then. I'm the head of the Arabic uh, uh, mission in London. Uh, I will follow up on what Sir William said uh, about the complexity of the situation in the Middle East. It's quite complex. And Eli, uh, uh, you mentioned now something related to uh, 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 having a dialogue between ourselves. Is it not time for us to think about regional security versus just you know uh, getting help from UK or any other power? Of course, this might not be the perfect time to do that with all the differences in the region and the rifts. And all this. It's a combustible region, of course, right now with all, all the problems taking place. But should we look far ahead? And the UK can play a role in that, helping us to eventually take care of our own business. I'll ask you to come back on that in a second. Yes. Um, to touch upon perhaps what I feel is a subject that's not directly discussed this evening, but cannot be decoupled from the discussion we're having uh, is the idea that uh, defence policy abroad, especially in the Gulf, um, is intrinsically linked to our foreign policy. And I think without having seriously thought through, and this goes back to the moment point, to the moment's point, without having seriously thought through where Britain lies in the world, especially the relationships in the most straightforward in the Middle East, I do not think it can be effective policy or even a defence review. Uh, and to what extent did the panel think that there has been some serious consideration going on how far are we down the road of really considering not only our security functions in the Gulf, but actually a much bigger question, our foreign policy priorities for the next 5, 10, 15 years. To what extent have we thought about that? It's a very interesting question. It's one that's coming up time and time again. Should this review be foreign policy-led or should it be treasury-led? Um, and I think that's what it's going to run and run. And there was one last question I'll take in this round. Yes, sir. Yeah. About? Simon. Yes, Simon. Yeah. yeah, OK. Uh, about the strategy of British and, and, and Bahrain, British troops or British, I don't know, you care about that was established in, back in 19, oh, 2013. And I've heard here from one of the ministers say, like, we, we went back to Bahrain. Please, Bahrain, to confer the Bahrain government for rulers there, like Iranian, they are not going to come to Bahrain here in order to implement whatever Bahrain. 
effect of uh, Bahraini governments on the water about the Bahraini people. I still remember, and, uh, uh, I read about this, in 1968 when the state minister from UK went to Bahrain. He met with the rulers there, Mr. Robert, I think his name. And uh, there was a question from Bahraini Prime Minister 50 years before, like, is the British government sure about leaving Bahrain to pick three players? Persia, he mentioned, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait. And I think this fears there is nothing from Saudi Arabia, the strategic allies to Bahrain, and Kuwait, the Iran, which is uh, just before Islamic Republic. That was my question. Yeah. Thank you. So we've got UK involvement in uh, regional security, uh, defence policy, foreign policy, uh, in, in terms of the defence review, foreign policy, red, and British and Bahraini relations. So, I'll take the first question. Yes. Um, there are multiple, as I'm sure you're aware, multiple um, roadmaps flying around at the moment for regional security in the region. Um, I think as external players, particularly sitting in Europe, we have to be very humble about what we can um, put into this process. I do think that there is a uh, role for facilitating dialogue and supporting the regional actors once the key players are all ready for that discussion to take place. Um, from my understanding, some of the key players are not yet ready for that discussion. Um, and, I, and I don't see that happening until the outcome of November is much more um, clear. Um, I would say where I do think there is a UK role, as I alluded in my opening statements, is in trying to find a political off-ramp for US-Iran relations. Because I think so long as that tension is, is at a peak, and so long as Iran is in a economic war deadlock with the US, it's going to be very hard to come to a regional security roadmap uh, with US partners on the ground. So the UK, I think, can help, uh, particularly using its relations with Washington and Tehran, to dial down the temperature on that front to enable an environment where that regional dialogue can take place. Michael, if you don't mind, I'll come to you on the uh, SDSR and, and what should read the thinking behind it. Um, sure, I was just going to have one Sorry, yes, please, please, on, the yes. on the first question, yes, which I just to repeat again what I said. I think we should use the opportunity of the opening up of the trade agreement with the GCC as a whole to start encouraging where we can. I keep being reassured that it's not the aim of anybody to try and collapse the GCC. And I think there really is an opportunity as a major trading partner in the Gulf for Britain to play that and shore it up on the commercial side um, with, with that new trade agreement that may then lead on to how we foster cooperation on security. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, on the defense uh, review, yes, I think, be careful how I say this, but I think you know the whole Brexit thing is kind of suffocating natural emergence of you know, a refreshed foreign policy over the last few years. Because uh, we've just said, well, it'll be global Britain, and we haven't been able to say what it is. And you've had successive foreign secretaries you know, advocating very worthy causes, girls' education, or stopping the persecution of Christians or, or journalists around the world. But they're not foreign policies. And um, you know, we do need to get the foreign policy right, which is why I was actually quite pleased by the terms of reference for this uh, defense review. It is aimed, I think the word comprehensive is in there, it is aimed at bringing foreign and defence policy together in a way perhaps we didn't in 2015 even. You know, we brought all the different security aspects together, but we didn't perhaps bring foreign and DFID into it. And we need to do it right across the piece. And as I understand the terms of reference, that is what the government is now committing to do. Um, 
Simon, I'll come to you to talk about Britain and Bahrain. Conscious that in two minutes' time, bells are about to ring. Right. Well, one very quick one. From the Middle East, you should cry. You can't. It's very difficult to solve one thing without solving all of them. The real danger from Iran, because Iran has a parasitic nature, to my mind. It can, it can live off a host and stop it ever being healthy. And the problem with Iran, when it acts as a regional player, a champion of Islamic Republic, and a champion of Shiism, means in Baghdad, in Damascus, and Beirut, and Sanaa, it absolutely stops the solving any of these. And it's not in Iran's interest to solve them. It weakens the Arab world horribly. Um, but I do think Britain still has a convening power, and we can do what we can in areas where I genuinely think we have a, a, you know, influence, which is, is, uh, is the Gulf. I really hope we're going to lead with the foreign policy. The key there with the foreign policy is then you can give some military strategy that says, your policy implies to me that this is what we should be using the military for. So what are your high-level assumptions? And the one about Bahrain, the king of Bahrain, or the emir of Bahrain, as was, and Sheikh Zayed, said, we will pay for the British to stay in the Gulf. Why are you going? But unfortunately, and this is what happens in politics, the hue of the government at the time was very anti-colonial, not as we all know that the Gulf states were ever colonies. They were dependent, dependent states. Uh, and there was a feeling that if we had a nuclear, a nuclear policy, uh, a, a nuclear deterrent, and we wanted to commit to the central region with NATO, we'd take the hit. No, uh, we'd take the hit east of two. It was a stupid decision, to my mind. And it's very interesting that when you go back of course the Khalifas still remember that offer. Of course the Neonis uh, remember that offer. And hence, to them, it's business excellent. Britain's back where, where, it, where it should be. And it doesn't necessarily need it to be Bahrain, but that makes eminent sense because we're alongside the coalition headquarters and the American Fifth Fleet there. Um, so I think it was very well supported by the Saudi Arabians and the UAE when the King of Bahrain generously said, you know, if, if I build it, I hope you will come. <laughs> and we have. So, Simon, thank you very, very much. Um, on that note, I'm going to wrap up formal proceedings. I've got to go and vote against uh, Labour's uh, motion saying that we don't care about the health service. Um, uh, I would like to thank everybody for taking part this evening. Uh, Ellie, Sir Simon and uh, Sir Michael for giving up their uh, very valuable time to come in here this evening. I would thank everybody for coming in and asking your questions. I'm sure that the panellists would be happy to hang around with someone I know I've got to leave and um, to take any other questions that you have. I'd especially like to thank CMEC for laying on this evening. Sir Simon, General Sir Simon is pointing out the fact that he has a book coming out. <laughs> 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 and he, wouldn't have, he wouldn't have let me go downstairs without pointing it out. Soldier in the Sand. And you, on the very, very handily, you can even order it on the back of this flyer, <laughs> pre-order, which is on the back. Twenty-five <laughs> <laughs> percent, if you're going to that one. And um, I'm sure CMEC would, uh, would, would, would be rather put out if I didn't mention their upcoming event, which is on the 18th of March, Women in the Arab World, which will be fascinating, shaping the future and challenging stereotypes. And on that note, thank you very, very much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you very much for the Yeah, thank you. Cheers. Thanks. I'll ask you again.